but the structure of our societies. So, so this is some of the work that's been going on uh, in a number of fronts the last uh, few years, trying to understand uh, social interactions, uh, social networks, and the kind of constituent elements of that, cooperation and the like. Uh, but then that leads to what I like to call the so what question. So what, if we can understand the structure and function of networks, what can we do with this knowledge, not necessarily to make the world better, John, but actually to intervene in the world uh, in some way? And if you think about it, that's also one of the tests of science. I mean, as a scientist, can you actually understand the natural world well enough that you can actually seize control of the natural world in some way and make it obey, obey certain fundamental uh, rules? So, there, so I'm going to close with uh, some summaries of a few experiments that have taken place over the last couple of years uh, and then a kind of broader set of uh, kind of a bigger idea uh, as a final point. So let me just summarize a few pieces of work that are going on in my field that I think are are very cool uh, at the moment. So the two broad categories of work. One category of work is, can we manipulate um, the structure, the topology of the network? Can we take control of the nature of the ties between people and drive the network to desired states? And the second is, can we manipulate not the connection, but the contagion within the network? Given a structure of a network, how can we seed the network? How can we introduce information strategically within locations that make the group behave in desirable or ways that we specify? So can we show that we've mastered, uh, understood this world well enough that we can actually uh, intervene in it? So one experiment that was done uh, by a former postdoc of mine that was published a couple of years ago now uh, is this, and I have to show you this image. So, um, so this is an experiment. Of, this is an experimentally constructed networks. There are two networks in this image. I don't know if you can see it. I was, there's just no way you could describe uh, these, these two networks. Both of these networks have 128 people in them. And in both of these networks, each person is connected to exactly six other people, okay? So if you talk to the human beings in these networks and ask them, how many friends do you have? They would say, I have six friends. And every one of them in both of these worlds would say, I have six friends. They cannot tell the difference between the two worlds which they inhabit, okay? Now I'm going to ask you, suppose I'm going to infect the person, the yellow dot that's up here, with a germ. In which of these two worlds do you think the germ would spread more rapidly and more completely throughout the network? From the point of view of the individual, there's no way of telling what world they're in. But from the point of view of us, with this God's eye view, we should have an intuition in which of these two worlds is the germ more likely to spread. And the answer is the germ on the left. I'm sorry, the network on the left. This random as assembly, ping, 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 the next step, the, the germ will spread from the yellow dot to the six red dots, and then from there to the others, and you'll flush through the system. You'll get a blooming of the information spreading or a germ spreading or whatever. And this is things that spread by so-called simple contagion. Now I'm going to ask you something different and more difficult. Imagine now what is to spread within the network is not germs or information, but for example, a behavior. For example, smoking cessation or cooperation, something more complex. It turns out that the world on the right is the world that is more conducive to the spread of such phenomena. So the topology of the network, which can be seen from above, is what's relevant to whether or not these group level properties uh, can emerge and be sustained. So this was an experiment that was done to show that. We did an experiment, and I won't show you any more images. We did an experiment in our lab where we um, recruited over 2,000 people online, and we brought them into these virtual worlds, uh, and the subjects played a public goods game with the people near them, a kind of cooperative game with those around them, who they were randomly assigned. Uh, and then we controlled in that world whether or not people could rewire their networks. So, in, in, and, and the amount that they could rewire them, by which we meant not only can you, if you defect from me, 
I can reciprocate by defecting, or if you cooperate, I can reciprocate by cooperating. But we gave me another tool, which is that I could cut the ties or form ties to people. So I could form ties to cooperators and cut ties to defectors. And then we manipulated the viscosity with which that could be done. And what we found was is that actually we could control the amount of cooperation that emerged in this group of people by specifying the rules of interaction. If we allowed people to rewire their ties just the right amount, then cooperation in the group would appear above and beyond and independent of the individuals themselves and their own tendencies. So we can elicit from the group a property, namely cooperation, by controlling the nature of interaction. Second experiment. A number of other experiments have been done with uh, contagion phenomena. So given a structure of human interactions in an African village, in a trading floor, uh, in uh, Wall Street, uh, in schools in the United States, uh, whatever the setting is, can you strategically introduce information in such a fashion that you can get people to behave in particular ways? It was just a paper published by Matt Jackson and Esther Duflo a couple of weeks ago in Science looking at microfinance. So if you want to get the adoption of microfinance in a setting in India, who do you, in the villages, who do you target so that if you get them to use the microfinance, you get the most spillover and the most rapid diffusion of innovation? Another uh, nice paper that was done by my colleague James Fowler, and all of the work that I've done that I'm describing today, virtually all of it, has been done jointly with James. Uh, James had a beautiful paper a year ago as well, in the last year in Nature, uh, where they randomly assigned 61 million people online to a voting intervention. And were able to show that actually showing people a very seemingly trivial stimulus drove not only the individuals themselves to be more likely to vote, but their friends to be more likely to vote and their friends' friends to be more likely to vote. So we showed a spread of civic-mindedness to two degrees of separation within this massive experiment done with 61 million people. In fact, it's estimated that an extra 300,000 people turned out to vote on that election because of James's experiment. Actually, our democracy was improved because of the scientists actually doing their work in that particular occasion. Um, there's been some other nice work on product adoption using experiments online. How can we uh, get people to adopt products? And we're in the field right now doing some experiments in Honduras where we've mapped the villages of 32, mapped the networks of 32 highland villages in Honduras, and we're trying to see if we can only reach 5% of the people, which 5% should we reach so that we get the whole village to change its mind about clean water and nutrition uh, outcomes. And we're randomly assigning the villages to different targeting algorithms. In some villages, we pick 5% of the people at random. In other villages, we pick them according to one targeting algorithm, and still another according to another targeting algorithm. And we have very promising results uh, from uh, this study. Um, there's also a sense in which you can now use networks, and there's been some nice work done in the last year, so summarizing my field, whereas now, instead of introducing information into the system, you think about networks as kinds of sensors extracting information from the system. So, for example, if you think about it, uh, just a moment ago, we cultivated the intuition that if you target information to particular individuals, they're, they're going to be more spready, more willing to able to spread whatever it is that's happening in the network. Now, let me ask you to think about this, since I can't use slides. Imagine a network, uh, and so there are ties, there are little nodes, and there are ties between them. And most of you probably have an image that in the middle there's a kind of jumble, like Christmas tree lights. When you open them up after a year, and there's a thick knot in the middle, and there are these little tendrils that spread out to the edges. That's what a network kind of looks like. And imagine that I could ask you, you could be a person in the middle of that and have four friends, or you could be a person on the edge of that and have four friends. Now a deadly germ is spreading through the network. Who would you rather be, the person in the middle or the person on the edge? person on the edge. You have the intuition that the person in the middle is going to be on more paths through the system 
you can formalize this mathematically and it's going to be more likely to get whatever's spreading through the system. This very simple idea was an idea that we exploited by recognizing that if we could identify who were central people in networks and passively monitor them, we would have an early warning system for epidemics. So the, epi the epidemic curve is a classic S-shaped curve that goes up like this. That S-shaped curve should be shifted to the left in central individuals compared to random individuals within the system. So if we can find ways of identifying central people using big data or other techniques and monitor them passively or actively, when we observe a spike in central people, it means that an epidemic is about to strike the population. This can also be done with economic information or any kind of information that spreads through the system. We were able to show that this works uh, with an outbreak of H1N1 flu a couple of years ago now. And in the last year, we also showed that it works on Twitter. I know nine days before anyone else, James and I know, nine days before every, anyone else, what's going to be popular on Twitter uh, nine days from now. Because we see it spiking in the individuals that are particular topological locations within the network. So to sum up, to close, this new work that has been taking place over the last year or two uh, in my field, which is uh, network studies and study of social psychology relevant to interactions and in sociology, uh, not all of sociology or all of social psychology, just my little niche, look where I sit, uh, and in the biology of these types of things, uh, has a number of features. Uh, first, these, this work is increasingly experimental uh, in nature. So more and more um, people are doing experiments. This, this move to experimentation is a kind of rediscovery of a tradition of experimentation in the social sciences. We always did experiments, but beginning in the 1950s, I think we became partly besotted with regression models. Psychology is a bit of an exception because they kind of consistently have done experiments. But I think we're moving back to field experiments in, uh, in broader swaths of the social sciences. And this is being abetted in part by the development of the internet and online experimentation. So the big data revolution intersects with the experimental revolution by making it easier for us to do experiments. So this new work reflects four things. First, they're experimental. Second, that it's uh, exploiting online and internet technology. Third, I think that there's, to my eye at least, an increasing desire to try to find things that are deep and fundamental about our humanity. I think the best social science now that is being done seeks to go kind of to a deeper and more fundamental level uh, to try to explain human behavior, at least when it comes to human interactions. And fourth, they're involving interventions. So I think that if you want to construct a kind of almost Popperian sort of theory of science, the ability to actually, inter you know, we observe the system, we have a hypothesis about the system, we uh, do experiments about the system and conclude it, and now we actually manipulate the system. We introduce genes. We excise the genes. We do experiments in particular ways. Uh, shows a kind of level of control or understanding that I think is, is very commendable. So collective behavior has always captivated people's interests, um, but I think in the last couple of years we've been making phenomenal progress in understanding what I would regard to be, well, for me at least, that which is the key aspect of our human nature, which is our interactions with others. Thank you. You mentioned uh, point three. Would you repeat that? Uh, something that I think transcends individuals, something that's very deep and fundamental, but that transcends you individuals. You mentioned humanistic or something. Say that again? Did you mention humanism or... <laughs> I didn't mention humanism. <laughs> no, but I, you're asking... You were imputing some kind of goodness. No, I'm avoiding that, because those were my marching orders from you, John. <laughs> I, I almost said... No, there is this sense of all the discourse about networks and big data that 
it means good. Uh, and and you know, Stephen Pinker notwithstanding, if you look at what's going on in Syria or yeah, yeah, yeah. any place else, uh, the Internet hasn't changed much in terms of human nature. Yeah, so, so I think I know what you're talking about. So I think like, like any technology, atomic power, um, guns, you know, it can be deployed for good or for evil. So I've been highlighting or imagining some ways in which a better understanding of social interactions can be exploited for good, but, but it can also clearly be exploited for bad. Now, this bad could be getting people to buy products they don't need. It could be uh, whipping up political fanaticism. Actually, if you understand networks, you are, can be much more effective uh, at, um, at fostering Nazism. Actually, there's a way in which you can, you can think of extreme political ideology and how it takes root in populations, how you would go about structuring populations precisely to reinforce these kind of extreme ideologies. So there are all kinds of bad things that you can use the same technology for, um, and I am not unmindful of that. But, I mean, the things we're trying to do, I would think, we're trying to increase cooperation and make people healthier and increase economic development in the developing world and you know, everything else that Sendel and everyone else here is trying to do. So, yeah. Lori. So I can't help but ask the psychologist question, which is, I think, a chicken and egg question, which yeah. I'll illustrate with chickens. So imagine you, you ran your network analyses on chickens. I don't know what chicken networks look like. Someone's done that, by the way, but really? go on. No? But I bet they don't, they don't look like humans, right? No, they don't. And so, Elephants and of course, do. oh, and, and I think the primate, the stuff we're getting out of Caio yes. Santiago suggests it looks really naughty, too. Um, but the question is that, well, why is that? Right. And so you started by talking about this fact that humans might have networks that are unique or unique to like more closely related primates or whatever, but then why at the psychological level could that be? Is there something about human cognition or human cognitive mechanisms that allows us to form those networks and not other species? Um, and if so, then yeah, that so seems to mean that the individual, at least what's going on in the individual's yeah. head, shapes so this. I think it's fascinating. So leaving aside the eusocial insects and clonal species where people, the interaction people, the interactions between the individuals are necessarily amongst kin. So we're talking about non-kin relations. So we've got primates, including us, elephants, cetaceans. What's amazing to me is when the, what's known about the network mapping of these individuals, of these species, is that those networks look in, incredibly similar. So elephant networks and primate networks and, and dolphin networks look very much like ours. To me, this begs like what I think is a really interesting question, which is, maybe there's only one way to be social. I mean, why, why would that be the case in the natural world that whenever we go looking at social species, leaving aside the eusocial insects, uh, would they have this, evince these network properties? Because the last common ancestor between us and whales is 60 million years ago. So the whales clearly have uh, you know, evolved this independently, and with elephants, about the same. So they're converging, I think, by convergent evolution on a similar solution, not about a bodily phenotype, but what I would call, and James and I are calling, an exophenotype. So think about this. Why is it that, why is it that uh, if a spider evolves bigger mouth parts to capture more prey, we think of that as a kind of evolutionary adaptation, but if a spider evolves the construction of a more elaborate web that basically achieves the same thing, we don't necessarily think of that as a phenotype. Well, actually we should, so let's start thinking of it as a phenotype. Spider morphology is a phenotype. If that's true, by a few short leaps, I could get you to believing that social network construction is a phenotype. The so my manipulation of the social world to construct a network around me, I would argue, is no different than the spider's manipulation of the physical world to construct a spider web around it. So, so first, second, picking up on your point, 
What's amazing to me is that dragging with it, or not necessarily dragging with it, walking along with network structure are all these other things. For example, mirror self-recognition. So dolphins have mirror self-recognition. Primates clearly do. Elephants have mirror self-recognition. Cooperation. Self-identity and other identity. So if you're going to cooperate and form networks with non-kin, you have to be able to know, oh, this is June, and that's Sendel, and that's Danny. You have to know them, who they are, from moment to moment. And these other animals also do that. So there's this suite of features that seems to be necessary and go together for the construction of social worlds. And then just to follow up, then yeah. that raises the chicken in it. So do you have to be the kind of cognitive creature who can do I don't X, know. Y, and Z, and then you're like, oh, I'll talk to June, and then boop, the network forms. I or does the network form, and that creates this crazy selection both. pressure yes. to like yes. have these mechanisms to do? I think it's both. Yeah. I think what's happening is I think, that I, I think that our social life and our biological heritage are in a conversation across eons. So think about this. Imagine a beaver. A beaver, for whatever reason, has a chance mutation that makes its behavior different, so it constructs a bigger dam. And now when the beaver constructs a bigger dam, you get a bigger flood behind the dam. And so now across time, those beavers, ideally to exploit the greater linear perimeter of the, of the pond that they've created, which gives them more foraging opportunities, needs bigger lungs. So the beaver now has to, because of the behavioral change, has to start evolving bigger lungs to be able to be underwater more to explore this perimeter, or bigger flippers, or whatever beavers need to be effective, okay? Well, I think humans are like that, actually. I think we have little things where we begin reworking the world, the social world around us. I think that creates selection pressures on our brains and our cognition, makes us social. The more social, cooperative, uh, mere self-recognition, all that other stuff we do, the more able we are to create these webs around us, and it feeds back on itself. But what's so interesting to me and James about, um, about the social world is that unlike the physical or the biological world, which God gave us, you know, is, material, is around us, we create the social world. So we create the selection pressure that then feeds back and contorts our minds and contorts our bodies. That's what I think is happening. Yeah, so you were talking about your interest in contagion, and I know earlier we talked a little bit about emotional contagion. And I'm just wondering, you know, to what extent do you think this, the spreading of this phenomena is going to vary depending on the type of network we're talking about, whether it's specifically, I think, of, you know, offline, more in vivo interaction, and now with, you know, the social media networks growing and ever increasing, and the, the degree to which you're expressing emotions in these two domains is radically different. So one of our arguments has been that emotions, emotional contagion, in which we're very interested, has to, you, there has to be some relationship at stake. So my emotional response to my child in pain, or my colleague in pain even, depending on the colleague, uh, is very different than my emotional response to a stranger in pain. Now, I still have empathy, and I like to believe in sympathy for the stranger in pain, but there's clearly something about it. Plus, it's also different to see the person in pain than to read about the person in pain. So A, the nature of the social tie, B, uh, the, um, the visibility are crucially important. However, I think that you can transmit emotional states to a lesser extent, but still uh, through online interactions. Like if you get a sad letter from your sister, you're going to feel sad about it, even though it's a printed word and not, not quite as powerful as seeing your sister. Uh, and we have an unpublished paper, which I think I can talk about very briefly, which we, we exploited uh, weather variation as an instrument. So we looked at all the residents of New York City, and if it rains in New York City, with Facebook mapping of the whole country, uh, their, fa their Facebook friends in cities outside of New York is affected by the weather in New York City, two degrees removed. 
And so we can, and we did this, I won't go into all the details, but we did this in the econometrically proper way, and so we can discern in, in a kind of quasi-natural experiment to the extent that you believe the literature that weather affects people's moods, which there is a nice cottage literature on this, um, you can use that as a kind of ex- what's known as an instrument to kind of identify these effects in online, uh, between online uh, friendships. Yeah, that's right. So, <coughs> like all models, there's a certain degree to which you're abstracting, and that's a sort of a necessary feature of modeling, right? You're going to take some stuff out. But, um, I mean, and I think you've highlighted something that's right about psychology, which is that we don't spend as much time thinking about what friendship is for. There's been some assumptions about it being for exchange and so on, and you have a different proposal. But, um, so just to connect it up to some stuff that we've been thinking about, I mean, one thing that seems to be important in our data about friendship is that the nodes aren't equally weighted. And so the amount of time and the degree to which I'm close to my first friend is really different from my fourth and fifth friend. And so what, what I'm really curious about is... First of all, as a technical matter, how easy it is to build things like that into the model. Because my, just for the record, my suspicion is it's going to be really important. And it might even change your pathogen dynamics. Yes. Because if I spend a lot of time with yes, one guy, for sure. right? Yeah. So um, as a psychological matter, that seems like a reality which would be very cool to build into yes. these sorts of things. And again, as an empirical matter, uh, we're finding that there's a relatively nice function that one can use to map these things. So, you know, is is the future of this kind of yes. work weighted, weighted, weighted edges? Yes, and yes. Yeah so, everyone, yeah, so everyone's moving to, well, not everyone, I mean, there's a big move to weighted graphs exactly for the reason you're describing. So every tie can get a weight now. So you can describe not just the, uh, the nodes. In fact, ties can become just as complicated as people. How long has the tie been lasting? How intimate is the tie? How frequent do you see the person? What, what's the vector? Does, do I, I say you're my friend or you say I'm your friend? And so you can begin to have all kinds of detail uh, which are highly relevant. And you can so weight the ties and use a variety of methods which allow you to take advantage. And it falls mostly as you would predict, right? So just as you suggested, people with whom I spend a lot of time are a more important pass through the network when it comes to germs, for example. Thank you. Thank you so much.